Hi. That warmed up as it went along. <laughs> it's so good to see you today. Um, just, just a few quick things before I start to talk. You know, next weekend we have one service. And uh, New Spring is growing so fast, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens when we're all three in one service. But it's at 1030 next week. You got that? 1030. So it's a little, a little earlier. And it's going to be outside, Lord willing. Um, when it was like 101 degrees, I was praying. I said, Lord, just cool it down, cool it down, cool it down, please. Let's have some cooler weather for this outdoor service. And now I'm saying, God, would you disregard that request? <laughs> How does I to know in the middle of August it was going to turn to October? Goodness. I mean, I got to get into that water along with a lot of the rest of you guys. And I'm thinking, <clears throat> you know, whew, it's going to be something to step into cold water. Back, you know, in rural America, 100 years ago, they used to have what they called shouting at religious meetings. And so we may have some shouting at this baptism, (laughs) unless the Lord warms it up a little bit. But it's going to be awesome. 130 plus people are going public with their faith, taking the step of baptism. New Springers, or if you're just visiting New Spring, I need your help in a massive way, Okay. Um, since we're going to be outside, if you have plastic chairs, folding chairs, camp chairs, or whatever, would you bring them for yourself? And then if you have a few extra, would you bring them for our guests? Because uh, we're going we're gonna to all be seated outside. We're going to have an outdoor service. It's going to be phenomenal. After the service, we're just going to have some fun as a, as a church family. And we're going to have hot dogs and hamburgers, and we'll be serving those and drinks. If you want to bring something extra for yourself, you're welcome to do that. But we're just going to have a great time celebrating baptism and what it means to be part of the New Spring family. So if you're a guest, you know, if you're, if you're visiting with us today, oh, you're so invited. You're so, so welcome to partake and in, in, in feel part of what New Spring is. And plus, I'd encourage you to invite guests. Bring extra chairs, invite more guests, and uh, we will just have a time of our lives. But if you're on praying ground with the Lord, would you ask the Lord for good weather that day? Because uh, right now, looking at the 11 o'clock service, can you imagine what it would be like to have two more services in here at the same time? So, and by the way, for, you know, last week I was sharing with the 11 o'clock service is getting pretty crowded in case you haven't noticed. And especially in some of the kids' arenas, we have three services. 930 service has a little more room. The Saturday night service at 6 o'clock is our newest service. There's quite a bit more room in it. And all three services are, are the same. Uh, I did make a mistake last week, and I need to rectify that. I said if you have preschool-age kids, we have a program for them on Saturday nights. Actually, the program goes up through third grade. So if you've got kids all the way up to third grade, and you're getting a little crowded, it's a little tough checking in and checking out, and you'd like to streamline that process a little bit, we'd invite you to our Saturday evening service at 6 o'clock. And I just believe, I mean, I'm, we're all blown away by what God is doing at New Spring. I mean, it's just, we're having the time of our lives. And I know that when we get into Pillow Talk in September, Five Secrets of Love and Sex, it is going to be just massive, massive. So uh, for those of you that could say, okay, there's a little bit of a time thing for me that it doesn't matter that much uh, and that works for you, we encourage you to do that. And um, let me just say this and I'll get right on with the talk. I cannot wait for the September series. You know, the culture that you and I live in gives us all kinds of messages about love and sex. How many of us have watched a lot of stuff going on and and we have to say, it doesn't look like it works very well. And that's how I feel. And the great thing about sex and love is God made them. And, And God wants us to enjoy both love and sex. 
And so we're going to be talking about that, what it means, how to enjoy those wonderful gifts that God has given us, and how that we'll use them in a way that builds our lives. So I can't wait to get started. I'm kind of in withdrawal, though, because this is the last weekend of Identify. Yeah, this time goes so fast. And God has done awesome things in, in, during this time. And what I've asked you to do during this series is to just check your life and see where you are. So many of us have grown up in religion. It's really hard for us to sort out the difference between what I've learned in organized religion and my real relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. And often, and I'll be careful about saying this, but often many of us have tried to experience Christ through the prism <clears throat> or the filter of religion. And it's all... The, the picture's all fuzzy and out of shape. Identify has been all about clearing away all the junk of religion and really knowing Jesus Christ. And I've talked to you about embracing Christ as your Savior. Last weekend, we talked about taking the wonderful step of baptism and celebrating communion. Today, I want to close out the series with just a real heart-to-heart talk with every one of us here. I want to start with asking you a question today. If I ask you what the symbol of Christianity is, you would tell me the cross, I think. Because that's universally noticed around the world. The symbol of Christianity is the cross. If you drive in front of our campus, you see the cross. You hear there's a cross here today. Some of you have crosses that you wear around your necks. You know, it's jewelry. And many of us have cross, crosses that decorate our house. When we see the cross, it makes us think about Christianity. And it is the symbol that we elevate. Why the cross? Why the cross? Because it's pretty strange if you think about it. Maybe not with 2,000 years of Western history that sort of sanitized the idea of the cross. But if you could go back in time and see what it was like in the very first century, it would be sort of strange for a people of worship to say our symbol is the cross. Let me give you a context for that. Suppose you worship with a group of people and you got in there and it was like in the middle of the building is a hangman's noose. And people are wearing little hangman's nooses around their neck. You would say, this is kind of strange. Or maybe you go to a place and you're, you're worshiping and, and, and they have a guillotine set up, you know, and people are wearing little guillotines. You'd say, well, that's kind of freaky. It would freak me out. But the reason why I say that is you do understand, of course, that the cross is an implement of capital punishment. And not just capital punishment. You know, no, no good Jewish person, even if he was going to die by capital punishment, could be crucified. Stoning was the way the Jews dealt with it. Crucifixion was for the very worst kind of criminals. And yet, that became the symbol of faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Doesn't that beg the question, Why? I mean, you know, why not just like a bird or why not, you know, a drop of water or something that was more, you know, more aesthetically pleasing? Why uh, an instrument of capital punishment? Well, I want to take you to the Bible today. And all of our texts are going to be in the zip code of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I think two of them are for 2 Corinthians 5. And then I think the third one is the first verse of chapter 6. I want to just show you why the cross is so important to us. You may be here today and you're not a Christ follower. If I ask you who you were, you might say, well, I'm another religion or I'm an agnostic. And we're so glad you're here today. And I hope that you feel loved and welcome because we're so thankful you're at New Spring today. And you may be asking the question, what's the deal with Christians in this cross deal? What does the cross mean? Let, Let me see if I can just share with you from the Bible why the cross is so important to us. In verse 19 of chapter 5, the Bible says, for God was in Christ. Every single one of us must settle who Jesus Christ is. 
Was he just a good man? Was he an insightful teacher? Or was he the son of God? Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says God was in Christ. He was human. He had a human mother, Mary. He was divine. God was his father. How'd it happen? I don't know. You can deal with the biology when you get to heaven, and God will help you with it if you're still interested. But that is how it happened. God was in Christ. Look at the next word, reconciling the world to himself. Now, just let that word reconciling settle into your mind for a moment. Think about what that means. Why did Jesus come into our world? We just read Jesus came into our world to do a reconciliation between God and us. What does reconciliation mean? And what's inherent in reconciliation? Some of you, you've had a strain in your marriage. And maybe for a time you weren't together. You might have even been separated. But you have reconciled. For some of us, maybe you had a problem with your parents. And you weren't talking to your parents for a while. And it was like the the lines of communication were cut. And you weren't speaking. But now you have reconciled with your parents. Maybe you broke up with your girlfriend and you've now reconciled. Maybe it's a friend that just something went wrong, wrong in the relationship and you weren't talking and you weren't texting and you weren't calling, but now you've reconciled. You understand the point I'm trying to say? There can't be any reconciliation until there's a breakage. So what's this deal about God reconciling the world? That means all the people in the world. What's this deal about God reconciling the world to himself through the person of Jesus Christ? Well, the Bible tells us, tells us the answer to that. You go back to the book of Genesis, there were two people on the planet, Adam and Eve, first parents. No matter who you are, what your race is or whatever, we all go right back to Adam and Eve. They were our parents. God put them in a perfect environment. God gave them one rule, and they broke that rule. And here's, this is an axiom for living. All of us need to understand something. The further any culture gets away from God's perfect plan, the more rules you have to have. Hey, I'm a child of the 60s and 70s. Man, you know, all the rock songs, freedom, freedom, freedom. And yeah, I mean, we've cast a lot of restraints off our culture. But have you guys noticed we have more laws today than we had back then? I mean, all of you are in small business. You understand that very well. I mean, it's all you can do just to keep up with the paperwork and the red tape. You have a hard time running your business because of all the rules. We're in a culture that's not very godlike. So the more it's not like God, the more rules you have to have. And guess what happens when you have more rules? You break more rules. And that is the world that we lived in. I mean, there was separation between the world and God because we broke the rules. And I can be, <clears throat> you know, I can be kind of protesting on that because I can say, well. That's not fair. Adam and Eve messed it up. What about me? Well, my problem is I've got a lot of years of sin in my life too, so what am I going to say? Guys, I'm going to sort of challenge the way a lot of people think today, but I'm going to challenge it with truth, and I want you to listen to me, please. We live in a world today where people say, God is a God of love, so anything I do is okay. And God is Uncle Sugar, and it's like, y'all play nice now. And, and if I need something, God is just going to give it to me. And if I do something wrong, God's going to say, oh, there's Mark again. Look at what he did. Isn't that cute? <clears throat> what are we thinking? Where does that come from? Really, it comes from the fact that we know we're doing wrong, and we don't want to be accountable for it. So we, we project that there is a God out there who's just Uncle Sugar. Guys, here's the deal. God is a God of love. 
Remember this, God is infinite. We're finite. I mean, if you look at any emotion, any, any character trait that I have, there's a point of beginning, there's a point of ending. It, it is a, it, it's finite, but God's not finite. He's infinite. So if you can imagine love, God is a God of infinite love. You think about the person who's loved you the most in your life, God goes past that person. You think about the greatest act of love that anybody's ever demonstrated in your life, God goes past that. You can go as far as you can imagine in love, and God is there because God is a God of infinite love. But the Bible teaches us God is also a God of infinite justice and truth. What's the toughest court you've ever seen? God goes past that. Who's the toughest judge you've ever read about? God goes past that. Just as God is infinite in his love, he is infinite in his justice. According to the word of God, every sin I've ever committed will be paid for. That's just how God looks at it. God can't sweep anything under the rug. We wouldn't have any respect for him if he did. Somebody could say, well, Mark, I've never thought about God in those kinds of terms. It is hard to get our arms around, but God is infinite in his love, infinite in his justice. Every sin will be paid for. And because we have sins upon us, we have this separation between ourselves and God. Enter Jesus Christ. Because here's what the Bible says. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Where did he do it? He did it outside the city of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross. Every time I see the cross, I'm so blessed by the fact that it's like the cross has arms and they're outstretched. The Bible tells us that Jesus lived a perfect life and after he lived that perfect life, by his own willing plan, he was arrested He was, you know, the abuse that Jesus suffered, I can't even begin to describe it. They pulled out his beard. They slapped him. They spat in his face. They took him to a kangaroo court, and they tried him, and and it was just a a joke. And and the people were so bloodthirsty for his blood that Pilate, who was the Roman intellectual governor, he knew that Jesus wasn't guilty, but in the hopes of assuaging their bloodthirstiness, he decided to beat Jesus with a whip. And they didn't beat him with a belt. They beat him with what we call a cat of nine tails. It was a leather handle, nine long thongs that came off that leather handle. And in those thongs were jagged bits of glass and metal. And when the lictor would bring the whip down on the back of the victim, the metal and the glass would actually embed into the skin. And then when the lictor pulled the whip away, it would literally rip the skin off. Historians tell us there were those who did not survive the beating. And the Bible tells us that when Jesus was finished being beaten, he wasn't even recognizable as human. Pilate had hoped that that would stop the crowd, but it didn't. They still said, crucify him. So they took a cross, and they put it on Jesus' back. And already already weakened from his beating, he carried the cross on his back outside the city of Jerusalem. And they put the cross on the ground, and they nailed him there. Imagine what it would be like to have a nail that would go through your hand and fasten you to the cross, and then another nail through his hand. And then they crossed his feet, and through the soft part of the ankle, they drove another nail through his feet to hold him there on the cross. And then they raised it up and jolted it into the ground. And for the next six hours, every breath that Jesus takes will be excruciating. By the way, the word excruciating comes from the word cross. It's the middle word. 
The reason it would be excruciating is because when a person was hanging on the cross, the head would sink down into the chest cavity, cutting off the air supply. So in order to get a breath, every person on the cross would have to pull up with the nails on his hands and push up against the nail in his feet to catch a breath of air and then sink back again. And that would happen over and over. And you will recall that when Jesus died, the thieves on either side were still alive. And in order to get the people off the cross before the Passover, they came and broke the legs of the thieves. And the reason they did was they could no longer push up and they would die of suffocation. For six hours, Jesus, the innocent, hung on the cross. This is why we celebrate the cross. Oh, I mean, look at it one more time. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. I mean, every sin must be paid for. So what did God do? He put his son on a cross to pay for my sins. Every once in a while, somebody will ask me, well, what if I don't want to believe in Jesus? What do you want me to say? You're on your own. I mean, I'm so thankful that God loved us enough to send his son. Jesus died on the cross. And when his death was finished, he yielded his spirit back up to his father. Now look at this next line because this is why I celebrate the cross. Look at it one more time. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. I love this. No longer counting people's sins against them. If I understand the Bible correctly, because of what Jesus did on the cross, God doesn't hold anything against me anymore. Isn't it great when you've maybe hurt some friend and that friend says, I don't hold it against you anymore. Maybe your husband says, I don't hold that against you anymore. Your wife says, I don't hold that against you anymore. I mean, all the things that I've done wrong, and I've done many things wrong, things that we've done in secret, things that nobody except us knows about, things that we hope nobody will ever find out about, God says, I don't hold that against you anymore. That, ladies and gentlemen, is why we celebrate the cross. But what next? See, here's the thing. In order to receive, you somebody can say, well, Mark, how do I get into that place where I like get all my sins forgiven and have this eternal relationship with Christ? The Bible is so clear on this one. It is the gift of God, G-I-F-T. It is a gift. As crazy as it sounds, and, and some of us will scratch our heads at this, but it's true. As crazy as it sounds, you can actually accept God's free gift of salvation and Jesus as your Savior, and if you wish, you can walk away and live your life totally for yourself the rest of your life if you want to. But it wasn't what we were designed for. I want you to listen to a scripture. This is also in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it's verse 15. The Bible says he died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. If you are a Christ follower and sometime in your life, whether you were a child or adult or teen, by faith you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and he forgave you of your sins, Every person who has accepted God's free gift of salvation, God's plan for you, is that from the moment you accept Christ, from that moment on, you will no longer live for yourself. Read it again with me. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who has died and raised for them. Now, one more time, I want to make this empirically clear. You don't have to live for Christ if you don't want to. You can live for yourself if you wish but it's not what you were designed for. I think there are many Christ followers today that feel an internal conflict 
because they have accepted Christ, but they're living for themselves. And it's like, ooh, something's not right here. It would be like if you took a Porsche Carrera. Somebody gave you a Porsche Carrera, you know, a little sports car, and you decided to take it off-roading. And you drove it over the rocks, you tried to drive it down the mountains, and you could say, look at my four-wheeler. It would be dumb because it's not what it was designed for. And, and you and I, those of us who have received Christ and we've received this new life, we can go on and live for ourselves if we want to, but it's not what we were designed to do. When Christ comes into your life, you are designed to live a new life. And what it is, it is a life of gratitude. It is a life that says, man, if it hadn't been for Jesus, I would be on the docket for every sin I've ever committed. But thankfully, I'm not, and God doesn't hold my sins against me anymore. What should I do in response to what he did for me? Guys, how would you feel? You know, you just have some wonderful gift you want to buy for your wife or your girlfriend, and, you know, it's like a really expensive diamond bracelet. And you save all the money you can save, and, you know, you go without breakfast, and you eat tuna fish, and, like, I mean, you're doing everything you can. You save up the money, and you go into the jewelry store, and you buy it, and it's her birthday, and you can't wait to give it to her. And, and you know, I mean, all this time and weeks and work that's gone into it. And you hand it over to her, and she puts it on and says, hmm, that's nice, okay. And then just like, that's it. See, that's what happens with a lot of Christians. It's like, okay, I got hell insurance now. I have accepted Jesus as my Savior. He died for me. He suffered for me and all that. Cool. I'm okay. Now I'm going to go on and do what Mark wants to do. I can do that. But it's kind of strange. Listen to what Paul said. This is in chapter 6, verse 1. He said, as God's partners, I beg you not to accept this marvelous gift of God's kindness and then ignore it. Guys, that's, that's what I'm standing before you doing today. I'm begging you, don't just receive Jesus' gift and then walk out and say, all right, this is still my life. For those of us who are Christ followers in America today, I think we need to ask ourselves a question. For people in our country who are not Christ followers, how do they tend to look at Christians? I mean, I'm just keeping it real here. I don't think it's very good. I think there are a lot of people that look at Christians today, they're not Christ followers, and they say, "Ah, something's wrong with these people. And, and if, here's what I hear, hear a couple things. First off, somebody can say, well, there's something wrong with their Jesus. I mean, that's why people are saying today, why is Jesus all that important? Lots of people, you know, wear crosses and talk about his name, but I don't see anything. Maybe something's wrong with Jesus. Man, how terrible is that when you think about what he did for us and he died on the cross? And then there are those who won't go there and they won't say, well, maybe something's wrong with Jesus. What they'll do is they will call us hypocrites. But you know what the truth of the matter is? I don't think we are hypocrites, and there's definitely nothing wrong with Jesus. I think that just what happens is there's so many of us who have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, but we're living life on our own terms. Yeah, I mean, we may give God a little time on the weekend, may drop a little bit in the offering plate, but as far as like living our lives for him, viewing our life through the filter of how will my life make a difference for eternity, we're not doing that. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is in John 12, and, and because of time, I, I can't read much. But if you will, if you get a chance today when you go home, read John 12. It's a great story. Here's the setting. It's the Tuesday night before the Friday Jesus will be crucified. And on this Tuesday night, Jesus is hanging with friends. They have invited him into their home, 
and they're giving Jesus a dinner party. This, again, is a Tuesday night before his Friday crucifixion. It was a bold thing to do because if you go back into chapter 11 and read, I think it's verse 57, that the leaders of the city had put a price on Jesus' head. His picture, his wanted poster was in the post office. They said, if you find Jesus, turn him in. There's a reward for his capture. And these were well-to-do people, and they throw a dinner party for Jesus on Tuesday night. Really cool. At this dinner party were friends of Jesus. There were two sisters, Mary and Martha, and their brother Lazarus. The disciples were there. There There's some other people there. And I love what the Bible says about Lazarus. The Bible says he'd been dead. (laughs) Some of you have been sick. Some of you have been unemployed. But ain't none of us been dead. And it all happened the chapter before because what had happened was Jesus was away and, and Mary and Martha sent off an email to Jesus. They said, our brother Lazarus is sick. You need to get over here and heal him. And Jesus waited for four days. And in the meantime, Lazarus died. They took his body out to the cemetery. They buried him. They had the funeral. They were all grieving. And Jesus got to this little town like Bethany. It would be like Andover is to Wichita, just outside the city limits. And Jesus gets to Bethany, and Martha runs out of the house and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. I don't understand. What took you so long? And Jesus said to Martha and Mary, don't worry about this. I'm the resurrection and the life. And he went out to the cemetery four days after Lazarus had been buried, and he called his name Lazarus come forth. And somebody said he called him by name, or else everybody in the cemetery would have come out. And now Lazarus is at the table. Lazarus had been dead. I just love that. (laughs) You ever been to one of these dinner parties where there's a guest of honor? I've been to a few of these. You know, the Bible says Martha cooked. A lot of people express their love by what they do. And Martha was a doer. I mean, she was just out there. And and so she loved the work aspect of it. She was whizzing around with pots and pans. And, and, (laughs) you know, Martha was the kind of gal that if it was in her head, it was in her mouth. You know, if she was thinking it, she was saying it. Sometimes it didn't even go through her head. It just came right out the mouth. And then Lazarus was there and others. And, and I'm guessing that what happened at this dinner party is that one by one they were standing up and they were giving verbal tributes to Jesus. And Martha was showing her love by cooking. But Mary's there. For any of you that have a hard time putting your emotions in words, you have a soul sister in Mary because she just never really knows what to say. Her sister just blurts it out. And maybe part of Mary not knowing what to say is having Martha for an older sister. <laughs> but for Mary... The dinner's good, but it's not good enough. The tributes are good, but they're not good enough. Something more needs to... You ever feel that? You're in a social situation. It's like something more needs to be done here. Mary knows what she's going to do. In her closet, there is an alabaster box filled with a fragrance. Now, fragrance in those days was like a solid. And and, and she has this huge, be huge by those times, cake of fragrance in her closet. Some of you have been, you bought perfume and one thing I've learned about buying Mary Alice perfume is that when it comes in the bottle, it's one thing. When they start selling it by the quarter ounce, baby, that's a whole different ball game. <laughs> but none of us have bought any perfume like this. This box, this alabaster box that had the ointment in there, it was worth a year's salary. So whatever that is, $30,000, whatever. I mean, most of us don't have a box of perfume worth $30,000. And Mary didn't just, like, put this on when she was going to the office every day. I mean, this was special stuff for special occasions. So she looks in the room. She's thinking, something more ought to be done here. And I'm guessing that what she did, she went back to her closet, retrieved her box, and she was going to do this. Because in those days, if you had a special guest of honor in your house, you'd put a little sachet of ointment 
on that person's head and his body heat would melt it and it would aromatize the room. I think that was her plan. Mary comes, I just sort of see her. She comes to the door cradling this box. And then as she stands at the door, it's like, man, all these memories come back. The first time she ever heard Jesus talk about heaven and how to know God. And all those days he stood in her living room and taught and just kind of like unlocked all the spiritual mysteries. And she had watched him touch people and heal them. And then I think it was the juxtaposition of seeing Lazarus and Jesus at the same table. There was her brother who was dead and Jesus came and called his name. And all the Bible records is that Mary walked to where Jesus was. And she crushed the box and poured out the whole contents, a year's salary, on Jesus. The Bible only offers one observation. The Bible says the house was filled with the fragrance. I was talking about this years ago. I think it was in Oklahoma to a teenage group. And after I finished my talk, a 16-year-old girl High school junior came up to me and she said something to me. She said, Mark, have you ever thought about the fact that this happened on Tuesday night? That when Jesus was on the cross and they were spitting at him and slapping him and beating him and nailing him and putting crowns of thorns in his head. And when he was experiencing all that hate, she said, Mark, have you ever thought about the fact that he could still smell this fragrance in his hair? I thought she preached a better message than I did. (laughs) Do you know why the world today rejects Christianity? It's because when they smell, they don't smell anything different. They hear it from us. You know, we got our bumper stickers, Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven, you know? That's just what a lot of us are, just forgiven. I mean, it's like, never went anywhere. I accept, thank you, Jesus, thanks for dying for me, good. I'm going to go on down and live my life, keep my box to myself. Maybe if I feel real good about you, I'll just like take out a little ointment, put it on your head, but... It's, in the words of that song from the 80s, it's my life. I'm asking you and me today to think about this. I've asked us to think about it all during Identify. For some of us, it means accepting God's free gift of salvation. It means saying, yes, I realize I can't save myself. I don't want to pay for my sins. I'm not prepared to pay for my sins. I don't want to do what that takes. And I know that Jesus died for me, and God loved me, and God was in Christ reconciling the world so that God would not hold my faults against me. And how do I get that? It's a gift. You accept a gift. You just pray and ask Christ to come into your life. For some of you, that's what it would mean. It would be a starting point in your relationship with God to accept his gift. And I want you to do that today if you never have. You just give God an opening. I guarantee you he'll come in. For some of us, it means baptism. Because although we have accepted Christ, we've never taken that step of going public with our faith, and there's still time before watermark. So I've asked you to think about that. For some of us, it means saying, I've never really thought about what Jesus did for me. And I'm going to think about turning my life over to Christ. That doesn't mean that you're going to go to you know, Africa with a, and be a missionary and wear a pith helmet and slash your way through the jungles. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just saying you live your life for a higher purpose. Say, Lord, just use me. Take my life. Make my life an instrument of your grace to transform and aromatize the world.
This and I'm finished. If pastoring the greatest church in the world has taught me anything, it's taught me that I think almost all of us want to do God's will. I've been in some churches where it's not like New Spring. And you guys are radical. (laughs) And I love you for it. Y'all want to do God's will. I feel that. I hear that. I think sometimes there's something that kind of messes us up. There, I th- just check this out and think about if life doesn't work this way. If anything great is going to be done, it requires urgency, right? I need to do it now. Procrastination is just a killer because it says, well, I'll get around to that someday. Great stuff happens in a climate of urgency. But urgency exists when there is clarity. You know, if I'm fuzzy about something, I'm not very urgent because I'm afraid of making a mistake. But boy, when it's clear, I'm ready to go now. I've got it clear. And for some of us, what keeps us from ever deepening our relationship with Jesus is we're sort of fuzzy on how that relationship works. Maybe for many of us, we were very young and we were in church. Our parents took us to church and maybe they did something. You know, they they took us to church and got us baptized or maybe took us to Sunday school or whatever. And it's like something happened, but it was before the meter of my memory started running. And there's some kind of connection with Jesus, but I don't know what it's all about. It's fuzzy. Or it's a story that I hear many times. Well, Mark, when I was seven years old, I went to church, and I just really loved the Lord, and I loved the Bible, and I liked church a lot, and I sang and everything. But then I got away, and I got into high school. Well, guess what? I was saved when I was eight years old. I had temptations then, but do you think the temptations of an 18-year-old are bigger than the temptations of an eight-year-old? They were for me. And we say, I don't, I don't really know where I am. I think I had some connection with God when I was young, but boy, you just don't know how far I really got away, and where does that leave me, and I don't know where I am. Maybe some of you grown up <clears throat> in very fundamentalist churches, and, and you've heard ministers get up and talk, and when they talk, it's like, I'm scared to death. I mean, it's like the minister tried to make me scared that maybe something is wrong between me and Jesus. And it's like, do I need to go be saved again and and all that kind of thing? I've been in services before, especially camp services and stuff, and and the minister would say, if you can't go back and remember exactly what happened to you when you invited Christ into your life, if you don't remember it happening like this, then you're not saved. Scare me to death because I can't remember anything. (laughs) See, the Bible never tells you that. If I ask you, are you alive today? You wouldn't go get your birth certificate, would you? No, you'd say, hey, Mark, just check my pulse here. That's what God says. God says, check yourself out. Do you have life? Is Christ in you? Are you trusting in Jesus? For many of us, I think we sort of like got stuck in a time warp. Sometime back in life, it was like something Spiritual, religious kind of thing happened as my parents took me to church. I don't really know what that means. And I'm trying to reconnect. I'm not really sure where I am with God. There's a story I like very much, and I'll close with it. There was a Maharaja, just a little boy, in England. Now, before I tell you about him, let me just tell you this. If you were to go over to London today and get in the crown jewels, you'd see this massive diamond 100 carats after cutting, and it became part of the late Queen Mother's crown, in fact. 
But anyway, this little boy, this little Maharaja, when Queen Victoria came to visit his country, whether it was maybe his people or if it was his family or something, they told him to give this big diamond to Queen Victoria. So Queen Victoria came to his country, and this little boy trotted out, and he gave her the diamond. Years passed. And the Maharaja now is a full-grown man. And he and his entourage are making a state visit to England. And his people said to the queen's people, we have a request. And it was a very awkward request. Here was the request. The Maharaja wants his diamond back. Well, queen's people didn't exactly know what to do. But Victoria said, well, you know, we don't want to cause any kind of scandal Just give it back to the man. And when he comes into my presence, we'll bring it out. And they had a velvet pillow, and they were going to put this massive diamond on the pillow and bring it out and give it to the Maharaja. (laughs) So it happened just like that. Young man walked into the queen's presence, and as soon as he entered in, queen's people brought the diamond on a pillow and gave it back to him. And what he did next has meant so much to me through the years because for all of us who've been kids and never sure what our relationship is with Jesus, what this guy did helped me. He took that pillow with the diamond on it and he knelt before Queen Victoria and he said, Your Majesty, I was just a boy when I gave this to you and I didn't know what it was worth. I didn't even know what I was doing. But today, as a full-grown man, with all my strength, And knowing its value, I want to give it to you again. Some of us need to do that with our lives. We had some sort of connection with God when we were little, don't know what it was. Maybe we didn't even know what we were talking about. We did the best we could at the time. But I'm going to ask you to do something. For a few moments, I want the box that you got, and we're so crowded today, we might have run out of boxes if we did. I'm sorry. You can just use anything you want to use. You can use a coffee cup, you can use a water bottle, anything you want to use. And you can do this at your seat if you want to. I'm a hands-on doer kind of guy. But if I've talked to you today and you say, hey, I'm not a child anymore. Maybe I'm not three or four or five. Maybe I'm 10 now. Maybe I'm 15 or 18 or whatever now. And I know what this means. I want to give my life to Christ. Well, I'm going to ask you to do something. And you, you, like I say, you, can do, you don't have to get out of your seat if you don't want to. But if you're like me and it's just your kind of thing, I'm going to encourage you to think about this. Whether you're in the balconies or galleries, where this take a little while. But today, if that's how you feel, and you say, Lord, knowing what my life is worth, and from my heart, with everything that's in me, I want you to know you've got my life. If you feel that way, would you just come and lay it at the cross this morning?